Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Revel One Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. This is Startup Grind. So we get together once a month and we have a conversation with an entrepreneur, an investor, and we talk about what it's like to start stuff uh, and to try to grow it and build it over time. And uh, that's uh, the conversation that we'll have with with Ruth Ruth tonight. And we've got um, sponsors to thank, Rev1, who lets us come in here and do this every month and sort of take over for an evening. So thanks to the Rev1 team. Alex Brown from Dickinson Wright is in the back. The guy that is, looks like an attorney is one. And so if you want to talk to somebody about attorney stuff, then seek out Alex at Dickinson Wright and have a conversation with him about that sort of stuff. Charles and Brian are here from Get Devs. They're new sponsors. So Get Devs is essentially an outsourced production team. So if you're building software products and you need additional minds and hands, um, you can talk to them about doing that. So Brian and Charles, thank you, and thank you for being a sponsor. GBQ, where's Rick? GBQ is, I won't, I won't say what I said earlier. That was a joke. I was, I was kidding. So GBQ, okay, good. Tax, audit, fraud, and now cybersecurity, right? Okay. So if you are into any of those things or need those services, talk to Rick from GBQ. They help you commit fraud. No, I would not endorse that. No. If you've been defrauded, yeah. So this is, this is my buddy John. So John gave me maybe the, the worst remark ever that anybody's given me about my hair. He said that I look like Dennis the Menace. Uh, why are you all laughing? It's not true. So, who else did I forget? AWH, Robin, and Caitlin and our team back there. We're a digital product firm, so we help clients build custom software products. And Heartland Bank um, is a sponsor. So if you need some place to put the millions of dollars that you're going to make making money, talk to the folks at Heartland Bank. So, without further ado, please help me welcome Ruth Milligan. Welcome. Thank you. So... How did we end up here? Why? Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the grander scheme of things, how did, how did we end up here where, where you and I are having a conversation about storytelling? Was this an intentional thing for you, or was this an opportunistic path that you ended up on? So I like to say that um, in 2009, this will answer a future question, when I when we did the first TEDx Columbus, the questions I send go in linear order. So now we're now we're totally screwed. After we did the first TEDx Columbus, I remembered looking on stage at the eight speakers and thinking, "Why aren't I doing more of that?" I knew what five of them did to do really well, and I knew what three of them did to not do so well. And I kind of replayed the rest of my 
career, and it started as a speech communication major at Miami. Any Redskins here? Woohoo! Or Red Hawks, now that they changed the logo, or the mascot. And then I was a speechwriter out of college in politics, and then I was in PR, and so my I talk about it being really a continuum and not just like an aha moment that one day I decided to wake up and say, oh, this is cool. But the compilation of experiences and um, jobs and opportunities, and I would say that I'm fairly opportunistic, and storytelling is kind of where it's all culminated. Let's assume you're good at it, since you're doing it professionally. If you're good at it, why are you good at it? Why do you think this is something that that you've developed some level of expertise in that you can help others get better at it? Um, So my son, who's sitting over here in the purple shirt, would dispute my storytelling ability. What's what's his name? Joseph. Joseph. Hi, Joseph. Is, is, Is your mom good at what she does? Has she... That's a, that's a ringing endorsement. Joseph, thank you for that support. He said he was looking forward to catching up on some sleep today. So oh. Anyway, just kidding. In my um, definition, a story is a bridge between something you know and care about and something you don't yet know and care about. So I'll repeat that. A story is something you know and care... A story is a bridge between something you know and care about and your audience doesn't yet know and care about. So hopefully through this conversation, I'll tell some stories that help that you all, my audience, appreciate my experiences through things that you understand, starting with terms and words and language that you know, right? Um, examples, metaphors, visuals, things that are snackable that you can chew on and see is a big component of it, and things that are relevant to you that you might be able to take away. So those are, when I'm looking for good stories, those are what drives them. So we were chatting before we, we started tonight, and you said that you actually, as a licensed coach, um, right, that you actually can't speak, right? So let's clarify that. As a TEDx license holder, the, I'm not allowed to speak on the stage at TEDx. At TEDx events. Right. So... Um, so how do you know th- that you're good at this? How do, you, how do you know? Is it that your, your clients get the outcomes that they want and you help them and, and you can see the progress that they're making and, and then they get the outcomes that they want? If it, at least in the TEDx case, that you actually can't get up on stage and give, um, give presentations at TEDx events. So despite uh, what, we may, what we may think in my office, TEDx is not the only place where stories are told. We tend to spend a lot of time there, but um, we spend more than half of our time working with training programs, working in delivering training, working with clients, and really, I like to call myself really a professional listener. All we do all day long are listen for stories. And so hopefully my ability to translate that. That sounds like a line of bullshit. That you're just a professional listener as a, as a speech storytelling coach. Well, if we don't listen, we can't coach back, so there's that. It might be a little bit of BS, but if you look at what I do every day when we wake up and I get on the phone, I'm listening all day long. Joseph, I'm sorry for the bad language. I swear way too much. 
Okay. Uh, now, my husband may dispute the fact that I'm a good listener. I'm going to just go back to this. Y- yes. Um, so, What's but, your husband's but, name? Uh, Dave. Dave? Hi, Dave. And Maggie's in between. Hi, Maggie. They're really excited to be called out. So. <laughs> I could tell lots of stories about them. But you asked a different question, which was, how do I know that I'm a good storyteller if I can't get on stage? I get invited to things like this, and I get invited back to train and give short talks and certainly can muse on if you read our blog i can muse on for hours about things people do inside their storytelling and presentations and public speaking you know forever (laughs) there's lots of that so being a coach is an interesting profession because if the people you're coaching progress evolve do better it's probably incredibly rewarding true for sure okay the opposite, when they don't do well, how do you not take it personally? And it, what part in them not progressing and doing better is your responsibility as a coach and their responsibility as the client or the, the student in, the, in this case? Sure. So I'm going to answer that in two parts. Who in here has ever read the book, The Four Agreements, or know what they are? So one of the four agreements you make with yourself through this book is that you never take anything personally. And a few years ago when I read this book, I thought this is going to be a grounding all need to recognize that when you're a coach, everyone's always in choice. And our job is to present choices to them of what they can do. You can tell the story in 40 minutes and make everyone bored, or you can tell the story in 14 minutes and keep them engaged. Your choice. Right? So I've... We, we learn to remove ourselves from taking it personally if they don't make the right choice. It's part of our job to tell them that they may want to tell the story in 14 minutes, not 40. Um, and then when it doesn't work well, it's mainly because they're making choices that are self-destructive. And I can't stop them. And there's a point in our coaching process that... You know, I have to say, this isn't my reputation at all. It's theirs, because they're the ones on stage talking. So this is going to be the most enjoyable part of the conversation for me. Let's talk about some of the, the worst client examples and stories and why, why you're classifying them as such. So he gave me this question in advance, and I did have some time to think about it, and I shared some of my responses. So this is, he has a little bit of a preface. But when I started thinking back about the moments that failed for clients, now I'm talking about, so just to give you all a sense of where I'm talking about these people speaking, uh, they might be on a TEDx stage. Likely they're on a TED-like stage. We do a lot of white label TED-like events inside companies and the university. Or it could just be for a client conference or a keynote, right? So it's anything where there's some formality to it, that they're actually delivering something that's intentional. It's not just like a staff meeting, okay? So uh, at the top of the list uh, is the person who proclaims in the middle of their talk that they made a lot of money. And I characterize that category of people who are just tone deaf. It's the person who thinks they're funny when they're not, the person that took... 40 minutes when they were given 20. Uh, The person that at the end of the talk came up and said, you know that video I showed in the middle of the talk that was sort of like the money part of my talk? 
you can't publish it because it's not mine. And sort of all of those behaviors combined are just arrogant and kind of ego-driven and really quite tone-deaf to what the audience may want or need. And then also their ability to have those talks properly syndicated. Uh, two of the talks I referenced didn't get published because of that. The other part of uh, failure is just not showing up. It's just thinking that they're above coaching or, yeah, I got this, right? So uh, last year we had a speaker start a coaching engagement with us. It's a different cohort in a different city. A cohort means just a collection. And he started by saying, don't you know who I am? Didn't you research me? Didn't, don't you know my ideas? Don't you know that I make $50,000 a speech? Don't you know I really don't need coaching? It's a really great way to start, start an engagement like that. Um, he happened to be one of the lesser um, heralded speakers at their event, went a good eight or ten minutes over and rambled through his talk, and you know, it didn't do as well. So that recognition that everyone has an opportunity to improve is what we're looking for. And it may be that we take you from this point to this point. Sometimes we take you from this point to this point. But we believe everyone has an opportunity to do a little better. And I know this because we coach people on all different levels of organizations and expertise. And most of the time, you've never had coaching in your subject getting ready for a consequential moment. And this might be the first chance you've had. And so that's why we know people can always do better if they're willing to show up and sort of put their egos aside. So the, the two examples that you gave sound like they're, they're both men. Maybe. Right? Okay. Um, are, are women, and this is actually a question that I, that I did not send Ruth ahead of time. I, I've just thought about it um, in the moment now. <clears throat> and I don't know if you're going to be comfortable answering it even. It, by and large, does that mean then that women are better recipients of coaching, at least communication, storytelling, presentation, coaching, than men are? I'll stop there. Yes. <laughs> uh, I would have to say that all those examples I gave the sort of were all men, and quite frankly, they were all white. And when you think about the privilege and sort of protection that comes, it's, it's not a surprise. I actually didn't think that that was the answer when I started looking at that list. But all of those were exactly that. Um, I tried hard to think of examples where women failed in our process over the last eight or nine years. And the only ones I came up with were ones who failed and got up and kept trying and wanted to do better and kept showing up and practicing more. So it was a different kind of failure. It was a failure in wanting to succeed. So do, we, do we know any of these, these arrogant assholes? Do we know any of these guys? Maybe. I don't know. I'm not going to share who they are. Okay. So the, m none of them are from Columbus, I hope, because we don't have any of those, no, those people here. No, there's absolutely no one here. And no one in the room, because you wouldn't show up if you were in that category. You would already have been coached by me or not wanted to be coached by us. And or, not, like, or not seen again. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, no, I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, it's, it's not exclusive to Columbus. We coach people in lots of different cities, and we, it's consistent. So <clears throat> let's talk about TEDx for a few minutes. Why does that format work? Why does the model work? So before I answer that question, this is part of a good storyteller. 
How many of you have been to, it's okay if you haven't, how many of you have been to a TEDx? It doesn't have to be of ours. How many of you have spoken at one? I see Chris in the back. Shout outs to Chris. Full P. He went through the coaching. He can attest, right? He's still here. He's not one of them. So, so, so we, so we know that Chris Volpe is not an arrogant asshole white guy. Okay. Um, so, how many of you, if you haven't been to a TEDx live, have seen TED Talks online? Hopefully, okay. So you get the format. So just a one minute of context for those of you that may not appreciate how TEDx became TEDx. When they put all the talks online in 2006, they started getting invitations to move the conference around. And they said, we're not going to move it. We're going to keep it in California. Now it's moved to Vancouver. But this genius woman named Lara Stein decided to, you know, give away the brand in the form of TEDx. And so the license is free. You don't pay for it. They don't pay you. There's a certain set of things you have to do. Um, And so in 2009, they threw out a little bone on their website and said, hey, we're giving this a try at USC. Anybody else want to try it? Click here. And Dave and I happened to be watching a TED Talk. I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert's first one, which is why he probably fell asleep in the middle of it. I do tell this story often, so he knows. It was late night. And I happened to click through and find the license application the day after it was posted. So it was February 2009. And I was bored at the time in my PR practice. I just needed something different to do. So I applied and got it. And that's the end of that story, right? We're now in our 10th year. But the reason it works, which is answering your question, so that I was trying to answer how did it come to be and how did I come to there, is, um, and Chris Anderson was on the PBS NewsHour last Thursday night. I think it was Thursday, and it's posted on YouTube and one of those like smart but spectacular little three-minute pieces reinforcing why the notion of a short talk, whether it's a TEDx or TED or TED-like talk works, is because the format is one idea that's deeply connecting with what you know and care about, back to my first definition of storytelling, and stripping out 90% of the bullshit that you don't really need to know to understand that idea. I was having lunch today with a colleague talking about um, the analytics field, which we can get to in a second if you want. It's up to you. Yeah, sure. But most of the time, we're, they're trying to prove the work they've done and prove how hard they've worked and um, what went into it, how big the team was, and how many different iterations they went through. And all I really want to know is what's the answer to the question? And if you can get that to me and then show it to me in proof and story, because our brain works in two sides, right? I can't just have proof. And I can't just have story. I've got to have data. I have to have truth. Um, then I will believe your idea, and then I will want to follow you, and I will want to help you, and I will, you know, support you. And that's, you know, what things like Chris Volpe experienced in working through his talk is narrowing, right? Getting rid of half of the stuff he thought might be relevant to the audience, but it wasn't at that moment because all I wanted to hear was the idea. Well, we were talking. You're headed to. Is it okay if I mention the, the client in the company? So you're headed after this to, to Michigan to meet with Ford. You've been coaching some um, of their data analytics team or maybe their entire data analytics team. Um, and so they're getting ready to have their all-day sort of thing tomorrow, meeting with the rest of the company. 
talk about that a little bit and the work that you've been doing with them and, and what evolution you've seen? Because I think most of us sort of don't think about data analysts and data scientists getting storytelling, communication, speaking, coaching to get, to get better at describing their work inside of an enterprise like Ford. Um, so my, my New Year's resolution this year was to work with more data analysts straight up, which is why I met Regan and reached out to help with women in analytics, um, because there's nothing more powerful, in, at least in my view right now, than working with super smart people that have tons of insight to share but skipped my class and just can't get it out. And so we love to help make that bridge for them. So we found ourselves through the Women in Analytics Conference. And by the way, if you don't know about it, this is Reagan. She's a rock star, and you need to learn more. Um, helping the Global Data Insights and Analytics team at Ford with their um, conference. So there's a 1,000 people of their, across their whole enterprise meeting this evening and tomorrow. And there's 26 speakers that will take both the main stage and breakouts. And we've been working with them for the last six weeks in narrowing their story and coming up with the right idea and what's the question they're answering. And um, because they put out a missive, uh, uh, a mandate rather, that last year at this conference, everyone got 45 minutes to present and they slashed it more than in half and said, you only have 20 minutes. And so you can imagine the freneticness of a data analyst, but I have so much to share how am I going to get in in 45 minutes, let alone 20? And so that's what we help people do is narrow down to what's really important um, for that audience for that moment. Some people are doing this really poorly, though, because I've been to a couple of conferences where they're doing lightning talks, like these seven-minute you know, presentations and talks, and it's just a disaster. It's an unmitigated disaster. Um, so w w why does it not always translate? Why can you not just say, we're going to do seven-minute sessions and seven-minute presentations? Is it because the presenters have now not been coached to be effective inside of a, such a tight time window? Um, so how many of you play a sport or have played a sport? What he's describing is you showing up to the game and never practicing. How's that for a story? Um, the, just because you're given seven minutes doesn't mean that you did the proper preparation to, to prepare, even if you did 14. They probably would have sucked at 14 minutes. Um, so you don't, so they're just sucking faster right. if it's seven minutes versus if that's it's right. 45 minutes. At least okay. it's less to suck, right? So, um, the, I hope nobody chops up of this video or audio, right? <laughs> Including you and you. The, um, what we've found is that most people skip the whole front end of preparation and what I call it's the staging area. So if you've been around a construction site lately, there's you know, the place where they put all the materials. You got your steel and your plans and your construction trailer and all that stuff. And it's sitting there outside of where the building's going to be built, right? And there's a lot of preparation that goes into what materials get delivered and how and how big and how many and... And then, at some point, they start to bring them over and build the building. And most people start building the building. They don't actually spend some time thinking about what's the two or three most important things I need to share to resonate and reveal insight to that idea. They just start talking. And by the end, 
you know, they've only shared half of what they wanted to share and three times more than they should have. So I'll give you an example. Um, a speaker who's speaking tomorrow uh, at another event, whose name will rename name nameless, refused to do a third coaching call with us. So we have three, you know, it depends upon the event, but four or five coaching calls. And I said, you, you don't want to show up and finish the process and, and share with, with the client your content? He's like, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. And I said, actually, you're not good because you have 12 minutes on stage and you have about 22 minutes of content right now. He's like, oh, you know, all I need is a clock. Just put a clock in front of me and I'll be able, I'll be able to like finish in the time. And I said, so what happens if it says 10 minutes and you're, you're not all the way through? He's like, oh, I'll just speed up. Oh, so you're going to get like 10 minutes of content in two minutes? That sucks. Not only for you, but the audience. Um, and what he needed to do was strip back and say, I don't need this 10 minutes, and how can I get to it, my idea, faster? So the answer really is in that staging, what we call the content framing, structured thinking step that most people just completely ignore. I feel so bad for men right now. Oh, wait, I'm one of them. Um, the, um, so the, the, in selecting TEDx speakers, what are you looking for that you can at least identify some attributes that you think you can get them to the point where they're going to be, they're going to be effective and it's going to be a good session? Um, so from the beginning, we learned one really important thing, and this is men or women, doesn't matter. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, we can take a really great idea and a really crappy speaker and turn it into a great talk. We cannot take a really fancy, great speaker with a shitty idea and turn it into a great talk. And I want everyone to appreciate that because that really feeds the... Well, and that would be the antithesis of what most of us probably think. Right. Right? That... A great speaker can deliver something that is a shitty idea better than someone who's not a great speaker can deliver a great idea. But you're saying it's actually the opposite. That's correct. 100%. Even a good speaker needs to still go through the process of having a great idea to share and can't just say the same thing over and over again and get up there and riff. Because guess what, what happens to you guys? You're like, ugh, it's probably the way my son's feeling about right now. <laughs> So knowing that, we almost review, so this is our, we're actually this week um, narrowing down to the next round of speakers for TEDx, and we almost review the nominations blind, meaning we're just listening for the idea. Because if we don't hear it, the audience isn't going to hear it. And while names and reputations and relationships will matter in executing the talk, if we don't have that idea going into it, all else is gone. So if the, if the idea isn't there in a minute, it's not going to be there in 10. It's a pretty rigorous process. So you mentioned uh, being at a PR firm and TEDx um, articulation, of course, right? So how would you describe your experience starting things and, and, and initiating things and then the process of sort of growing them and then maybe in some cases realizing 
it's the it's the end of the line and it's time to go do something it's time to go do something else um and are those moments do you look at those moments as being moments of failure or moments of just tran- you know transition um so just how would you sort of characterize your experience as a initiator and launcher of things um so just to give one minute of context i joined a um a marketing firm in 99 and started a PR division inside of it. It totally busted with everything else in 2001 and 2002. And I left and started my own practice. And it was out of necessity. And I decided I had two missions. One was to pay my bills and then plan my wedding because we had just gotten engaged. This was in 2001, 2002. And when the wedding was over, and I paid my bills for six months. I kind of came out of the basement and said, oh, shit, that kind of worked, and just kept going. And it wasn't until 2009, really, that I took a step back and said, what have I been doing for the last seven years, and what is it that I really want to do? And TEDx was kind of that door that opened that for me, that that's really what I want to do. So I got rid of the media relations and the crisis communications and the marketing planning and the campaigns, you know, and the, the multi stuff and narrowed down. So I didn't view it as a failure. I viewed it as like, I just, cause I had two kids, I got married, I kept just doing what I thought was right. But it, if I looked back on all the client work, it wasn't necessarily stuff I was passionate about. And I can say without a doubt, every day I go to work and it doesn't feel like work because we're working with smart people with great ideas that need to be translated. And every single day, Every day I learn something new, and no two days are alike. When when we chatted um, a while ago, um, th- it sounds like there was also a, an experience as part of being at the the, the firm of, of how sort of they handled um, the the um, transition, let's call it right, um, and that shaped sort of you know how you sort of think about and how you sort of you know operate now. Share a little bit of that if you would. So true story, um, the firm that I was with was going to do one of three things, right, as everything was falling apart. Uh, they were going to sell, they were going to close, uh, or I was going to get fired, or I was going to quit. So maybe that's four. So there was, you know, something was, you knew something was happening. For those of you who've been in that situation, you sort of, it's in the ether, right? You kind of know, like, there's going to be a change. Uh, and I got called in, um, and I was fired. And they told me I was fired for insubordination, which I thought was pretty cool. Like, yes, if you're going to get fired for anything, get fired for insubordination. And um, I invested a lot of equity, sweat equity. I, you know, paid my paid for myself and my team several times over, um, and I got escorted out. And it severed a whole lot of relationships that moment. Um, it was pretty significant, and uh, you know, I still carry it with me. There's not been like full reconciliation, but that was, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago. And, you know, I thought to myself, that's not the way you treat people, A. And if you do have to make transitions and changes, you've got to lead with dignity. And so I figured everything in my life sort of from that point on has really been fueled by that. And so when we work with speakers or bring on clients or build relationships, it's with that in mind. Um, we all survived. We all in our separate ways, and as you guys know how those things happen, you, the sun still rises, and nobody took away my house or my car. Actually, they did take away my car. I forgot. 
they wouldn't let me drive my car home. That was part of, part of the... <laughs> um, I had a company car, and they told me I could uh, leave it there. Or Did they at least buy you a bus pass? No, no. I had to like ask somebody for a ride home. Can I put my shit in your car? Yeah. Can you drive me Got home? Got it, yeah. Um, so, you know, you learn. And, and I think they probably reflected that probably, those probably weren't the best decisions either. And, you know, you don't hold grudges, but you learn from them and you move on. So why does, why is storytelling effective? Why isn't it an effective tool? And why aren't we intuitively better at it? So to answer the first question, uh, goes back to my first point, which is that it connects us, it engages us, it gives us something to anchor on. So if I don't understand CRISPR, how many of you even have heard what CRISPR is, right? All right, let alone understand it to be able to explain it. Add CRISPR to another technology that's being developed. CRISPR is a genetic editing tool. It's very complicated to understand. It's even more complicated to demonstrate because it's visually you can't snack on it is what I like to say um, but the use of metaphor allows us to finally understand what CRISPR is so saying editing tool like a typewriter editing like a you know gives us some connection and I won't go any further because I'm not a CRISPR editor but expert so in leadership I consider storytelling a critical competency that if you're in a leadership position, whether you're in a startup or a group at Cardinal Health or any of the scientists we work with, um, you have one primary goal, which is to get people to follow you. That's inherent in the word leader. And if people don't understand what you're, where you're leading them, then you got a problem. Um, story. So who gave the most important vision talk ever in our history? I heard it. Martin Luther King. Sorry. <laughs> he hasn't been in my workshops, no. Um, and so why was Martin Luther King so powerful? Because he juxtaposed the, um, the heat and oppression of a day against the oasis of freedom of tomorrow. Those are words everyone can connect with and concepts and senses. And so that's one of the reasons um, why I think storytelling is critical. And we were talking about... You know, our practice doesn't do a lot in the startup community. And we were wondering why that was. We just don't get calls and I haven't reached out. But I think inherent in a startup is the fact that you have to know your story and repeat it a thousand times. And so if you don't know your story and you're calling me, then you're, something's probably wrong, right? Yeah, I, I'm, I've said for a long time, especially the founding team or the founder need to be the best storyteller of what the company is, why does it even exist, right? Why do they care about this problem? Why are they the ones to solve it? Because ultimately, startups are pitching everyone. They're pitching customers, they're pitching investors, they're pitching people to join the team. And since most of us are not intuitively good storytellers, that means they have to get good at storytelling. And most aren't. If you look at most pitch decks, and if you look at most sales presentations of founders and people at startups, they're terrible, and they suck. So to answer your second question, which is why do we suck at it? Um, largely because we get so in our own head. And we're, we're stuck inside our data and how we got to our data and how we analyzed it and what our... And we forget that, oh my God, there's an audience of people out there that need to understand what I'm thinking about. And we're not thinking about their needs. And so we're only thinking about 
our needs. And once we start, um, I had a call this morning from a client, happened to be a male, but he worked really hard and he wanted to do really well. And he gave a talk last there's a week. There's guy out there doing okay. No, 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 there's lots Goodness. of them. There's lots of them. Don't get me wrong. Lots of them do well. Uh, and he said, you know, last week I gave this really important talk and I memorized it and I worked so hard at it and it was to this big conference and 10 minutes in, I totally blanked. And I was so devastated and I had to like reach in my pocket and look at my notes. And then I found my place and I kept going. I was like, that's it? That, that's all that happened? Like that like 30 second moment, that's, you, you didn't fail. You had a moment and you recovered and you finished fine. And the embarrassment around that really is about ego protection, right? That, oh my goodness, I forgot, so now... And I'm not supposed to forget, because I'm not supposed to be human up here. Right. And more importantly, I said to him, we'll call him Mike, I said, Mike, I have a feeling that you only got A's growing up. And you go, yeah, you're right. And he doesn't know the emotion of what it feels like to be uncomfortable in like not being perfect. And we recognize that. We'd support it and say the next time you'll know that it's okay to lean into that for a minute and pull yourself out. I said his only mistake was in not knowing that it could happen. And the second mistake was getting so deep inside his head he forgot there was an audience of people there that, that wanted him, that was rooting for him, wanted him to do well, wanted to hear his stories. And so he was so fixated on this image of perfection that was not going to play out. Um, and so therein lies the work that we have to do, which is 50% of what we talked about earlier around content and story and organizing. The other 50% is getting your head right and not getting out, of your, getting out of your critter brain and giving yourself those doubting questions. Uh, you know, give them a hike. Oh. Hey, it's not <laughs> time for questions yet, John. Jesus. <laughs> You'll get to go first, though, when he's ready. Uh, is our storytelling? Now I'm just now I can't stop laughing. Um, our storytelling, presenting, speaking, communicating, all synonymous, or is storytelling a foundation of those other activities? So you're sort of asking me what the parent and child is, right? Sort of. Yeah. So think of a family tree. Everyone can imagine that, right? And the grandparent at the top is the idea you want to leave with the audience, okay? And the three children are your sort of proof points that bring insight and validity to that idea. And the grandchildren are the stories that resonate and engage those proof points. That's how I think about this every day, all day long. That story is a support for a larger idea. It is not the idea itself. And they are so supposed to resonate and, and bring clarity and connection to those things that might be complicated. So, so the medium doesn't matter as much, whether it's in an email or you're standing up in front of a group giving a PowerPoint presentation, for goodness sake. Let's hope that's not the case. But um, the medium is less important than sort of how you're structuring it uh, foundationally and from a core principle perspective. It's, a, it's kind of a complicated question you're asking because I gave you sort of the structured thinking approach to where story fits. Yep. And you're asking me now about the channels and how it gets expressed. Okay. Yes. Okay. So uh, I would say... I feel, like I'm, I feel like I'm getting coached right now. No, I'm sorry. Because I'm looking... Here's, I'm the, here's the right way to ask this question. 
but it's okay. No, but I'm trying because to. Because I've also make sure screwed up I, no. so much in public no. that, I, that I'm I cannot be embarrassed whatsoever. No, so but I'm like the guy whose ego got got <laughs> damaged. Mine will not get damaged. Trust me, none of those egos were damaged along the way. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, I just we ask clarifying questions a lot. So because I want to make sure I'm answering the right the, the question you want me to answer. So, you're, on, you're on to it. So the metaphor piece. Actually, we had this conversation today. Where when was the last time you wrote a metaphor down? Like hardly ever, right? Metaphors are things that like get you to establish how how I want you to feel about this. It's not necessarily something that has place in the written form, right? Um, but they have a great place in spoken, and even the metaphor I gave you about staging, I wanted you to feel a certain way about how I was going to answer that like preparation question, so I connected with that. Um, but I would say structure is paramount to any um, story arc. So we talk about sort of the larger story arc, right? sort of the beginning, middle, and end, and then there's the discrete story about like binging in the senses and how I want you to feel about something. And they are inner, you know, you play with both of them. So make it more confusing probably. Sorry. So so how do you how do you take someone from being not good to being good? And how long does it typically take and what sort of trajectory does that look like? It take a lifetime, by the way. <laughs> is, is is there a typical oh. or is, or is it all individualistic? So let me give you some story examples to demonstrate this. Yeah. Okay, so somebody who stays in the platitudes Meaning like they're only talking about things like what we call maybe preaches. Like you should do this and you should do that. You're like, oh God, don't tell me what to do. Tell me, show me what you want me to do. I would say, let's not say ever, let's never say the word should. Can you just tell me a time and a place where you saw that happen? So that's just a, one of our story tools on moving people into not feeling like they have to stay up here. And you guys know what I'm talking about when people just stay in the clouds, maybe. Um, so it is in the moment that we're coaching and nudging and showing them that they can do it, they do it. We give them lots of credit and recognition and show them how then it resonates better. So, uh, you know, some people come to this without any experience. I got my PhD in predictive analytics, blah, 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 and I never had to tell a story, and I'm 55 years old, and I have 17 patents. You want me to do what? Um, do you have them start writing poetry or something? No. No, we don't do, we don't do poetry, fortunately. Um, but we have lots of ways in which to get people comfortable with it. Um, and I would say that, you know, it, people just come to it. I can't, there's no one answer like how long it would take someone to, it takes practice like everything else. Lots and lots of practice. So Robin's going to grab mics from, uh, to ask, there's Robin, so she's back there. So I'm going to scoot over here since John and I so rudely cut John off. John, what's, what's your question? No, that's all right. Actually, uh, I wanted to ask about uh, Mike, the person who had yeah. that 30-minute freeze. And, uh, 30 would, seconds. 30 seconds, I'm sorry. So would you... Would you if it was 30 minutes, that would have been a fail. He wasn't yeah. a fail. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how to tell a story yet. That's okay. Uh, but uh, in that... In that uh, would you, it seemed to me like uh, he was over-prepared. And um, when do you think that uh, somebody uh, is over-prepared, and how do you kind of avoid that? 
Holy shit, dude, that's a really good question. I'm like really surprised. Can you be, can you be too overprepared? And in fact, John, that's what I told him today. Was that you work too hard on memorizing it, too hard in like trying to be that thing that you thought was perfect, as opposed to one of the things we do that might answer your last question as well is we can we try to convince people that most talks are actually a series of short stories woven together with that through line or idea. So I can tell discrete short stories, right? I can tell the story about when I was, you know, at the first TED conference. I can tell the story about when I applied for the first TEDx license. I could probably give you five or six little stories that, that tie together that demonstrate my TED experience. I know all of those because I experienced all of them. I was there. I saw it. I tasted it. I smelled it. You know, like I have all the senses. I don't need to rehearse those. I just need to make sure I'm concise about them. He took what probably was a script and tried to memorize line for line. And if there's one thing that we actually tell people undeniably don't do, is don't script. Because it ends up badly. That like, wait, I have this line, then this line, then this line. Instead we say, let's narrow that down to some snackable stories that you can weave together and share like I am right now, trying to be in conversation. Can you be a good storyteller and presenter if you are reading from notes. Did he say the word reading? No. Is that a no? Nobody nobody's a good presenter reading. We have a joke in our office that within like I don't know 15 30 seconds we can tell like if you're delivering something to us in co uh, practice and we're not seeing you we're just on the phone we'll know if you're reading. Partially because and a guy named John McWhorter gave a TED talk about how texting is not killing language. In fact, texting is how we speak. It just happens to be the written expression of how we speak. That's different than how we write. Follow that? More importantly, we don't actually write like we speak. Because we write in 12, 14, 16 word sentences, but we speak in eight, 10 word sentences, and so our pauses and our breaths and where we would naturally break is not where we would break for a sentence or a paragraph. So I can tell out of the gate if you're reading to me. I like to use the example of, uh, you know, when President Obama would speak, he'd say things like, I'm not gonna be him, obviously, but. Let's, let's see, let's try, let's let's see try, your best yeah. Barack impression. Last night, Michelle and I, we went to the movies. And we had a great time. Okay, so tell me who writes that in a sentence with those long pauses and breaks. You, know, you can hear that cadence and how he would deliver. And the only person that knew that cadence well was his full-time speechwriter. And so therefore, when you think about writing a speech, you've got to know that voice and that cadence and how they like to deliver. I happened to have an opportunity to be a speechwriter for four years and I got to know one person really well and I knew how she spoke and I still wasn't that good at it because I didn't quite know all the tricks I know now. Um, but I recognize that that's a, re that's a skill, it's a gift. So that's why we actually encourage people to um, think about the discrete stories they may tell around a scientific 
moment or an experience or a journey that they can weave together because they know them well. And their slides behind them may be the images that support those stories. And never reading and scripting goes along with bullet points. They're all sort of in the forbidden fruit category in our practice. So now just in um, the tone of political fairness, um, give us a little bit of, of a Trump speech. I don't think that's very unfair. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that Trump is good at is, you know, speaking to the audience. So uh, Dave and I last night watched, um, I'm going down a rabbit hole, I won't go there, but, you know, somebody who said they really love Trump, but it was in an area that you thought, why would you love Trump? It's because he speaks to me. It's like, how could you speak to you? You're you're a coal miner that that doesn't have a job, right? This was the reflection. And it's because he knows how to engage the audience in his message. So as, <clears throat> as much as some people might dislike someone else, sometimes the person that we might dislike actually is an effective storyteller. Right? We might not like it, and the story might not resonate with us, but it's resonating with somebody. I think that was proven. Right? <laughs> right. Yes. Um, so just because we don't like the content and the delivery and the message doesn't mean that somebody's not a good storyteller and is ineffective at this. Okay. Uh, raise your hand, and Robin, who's back there, will get you a mic. Uh, so Dan Harris, known Ruth for a while, but um, I really like the idea of this analogy of the bridge and then the, the visualization of the staging area. So the question is, around that building analogy and staging area, uh, and your definition of the story as a bridge, um, what are the key things that are needed to construct the right bridge? So good question. Um, the first are the senses. So last night everyone was somewhere doing something at 8 o'clock, all right? Sunday night, 8 o'clock, right? Can you see it? Where were you? What did it sound like? What were you touching? What did it feel like? Were you sitting on your couch? Were you running? Buying random shit at Target okay. that we didn't need. So which Target? On Olentangy River Road. What kind of shit? <laughs> A candle. Um, with, um, some um, household accessories. Um, if, if, I, can't, I can't remember the other stuff. Yes, very important stuff, obviously. Yes, it's remember. so random that I don't even remember. Okay, so quick question. How many of you know where uh, the target on Old Tantra River Road is, right? How many of you know what a candle looks like? How many of you know what random household accessories and shit looks like? <laughs> How many of you know the, the emotion of going to the check cash register and saying, oh, God, I did, not get, I did not spend $100 today, which is actually exactly what we did on Saturday. I said to the cashier, oh, it's only $80, not 100 so, uh, just in a quick demonstration, we all had connection to what Target looks like, what it feels like to walk through the cashier, what a candle looks like, all those elements. If you had said you went trekking in Nepal, you have to spend a second, right? Okay, trekking, Nepal. where's Nepal? Trekking, is that like a long walk? How long were you gone? How'd you get there? Who are you with? A lot of questions, because I still can't see it in my, my head. But Target, buying shit, I can get that, right? So that's the first step, is that I'm using the, the, the senses I'm connecting with. And I'm using language inside there that 
we appreciate and understand. So this is a great story. Uh, we spend a lot of time working over uh, with the docs at the Wexner Medical Center. And there's a big event Wednesday, and one of them is the electrophysiologist. Right? You get that? No, I didn't either. And he's trying to, he has to explain inside his talk, and this is to donors who know nothing about his science or research. Uh, he has to explain inside his talk what an ablation is. How many of you know what an ablation is? Like, like half, right? It's when you like shove a tiny little needle up through a vein or an artery or something, and you either freeze it or you... So glad you said vein or artery. I'm so glad. Burn it, right? You either freeze it or you burn it, and it sort of goes away. That's ablation. And so he refuses to use the words freeze or burn because he's like, I say that to a patient and they totally flip out. And so we're all like, well, what do you tell them? Like, what do you say? He goes, I'm just doing an ablation. I go, you don't ask, you don't, they don't ask you questions. He goes, no, I just keep moving. Like, I, <laughs> I, try, I try to make sure they don't ask any questions. And we're like, but you have to explain it inside this talk. So what can we say? And he goes, because what would you say to your, you know, this is sort of like where we go, and I started the, the coaching with him. I'm like, to pretend I'm your 86-year-old mother, and you have to explain to me what you do. We sometimes will do that. Like, tell it to me like I know nothing. He goes, I use hot or cold. We're like, good, just use that. Sometimes we use hot, sometimes we use cold, and that's what an ablation is, and that's all you need to know. Because he's iterating on the emotional response from his patients, and he doesn't want the donors to have the same experience. But we will spend, you know, five, ten minutes sometimes debating the right words so that you don't alienate the audience. So senses and language. And then the last part, because there's always three, um, we launched a video campaign today, a, vi a humorous video campaign, the first one that came out in the point was you only have three points to make. You don't have more than that. The third is that you can, you know, be concise, that there is a beginning, middle, and end. And with that, I'll take another question. Yeah. Any final questions for Ruth? Um, what's the best way someone can prepare for a session with you? Show up. <laughs> That's good. Right. Um, often if it will go, we we do have sort of a, um, a mantra that says, we go to where you are. And I don't mean that as like a bullshit line. Like we've had speakers show up and say, I didn't get anything done. I don't know if we should take the time. And oftentimes they'll say to the speaker, would you rather have this time to work on what you need to do? Or do you want to just work on it together now? So it's listening to what the assignment or homework is, because there's homework. Um, and trying to work towards it and do your best. And if you can't or you run out of time, we always still support you and where you are because we want to make that time effective for you towards the end goal either way. John has another question. Do you allow two questions? <laughs> because audiences like silly, stupid things. <laughs> That's correct. Um, I'll just, can I leave with one example? Leave, rather, not lead. Uh, a woman nominated herself to speak at TEDx a few years ago, and um, I don't know if this was Chris's year, but she had been a 13-year heroin addict, and it happened to be a year we knew we wanted to showcase some story on stage around the epidemic. And this was um, three years ago now, I think. And she'd never spoken in front of a group of people before in her life. 
like maybe three family members, maybe a support group. But that was it. And her sister, who had been to a previous TEDx event, said, you're ready, you're clean, you're ready to give your, your story. And her story happened to mirror exactly the epidemic. Like she was given a pill when she was 21. The pill mills started coming up. The pill mills went down. She started heroin. I mean, her story was our trajectory. And we accepted her. And we worked with her. And she gave a talk um, that was so spectacular for her. And it still was. And she's continued to carry her message on. But the reason I share that story is because she was asked by CNN to ask the heroin question of Bernie Sanders at the debate that they had on campus. She got an email from CNN and she thought it was like spam and she deleted it, like a Facebook message. And they said, no, 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 we really want you to come and ask this question. We saw your TEDx talk and we think you're really articulate. And and then she got invited by Anderson Cooper to come on his town hall. And then I was actually in New York with Joseph on his 10th birthday. And I opened up the New York Times and there's this big story about President Obama's heroin opioid summit in Atlanta. And there was a picture of President Obama and a woman and one other person, and it was Crystal. And she'd been invited to give remarks at this panel discussion because of her talk. And so I just want to leave you all with that note that the, I haven't said this, but the democratization of ideas is really where ideas can, when you allow them to be on the same stage. She preceded George Barrett, who was the chairman of Cardinal Health that year. Um, and that we treat, everyone gets to hear all ideas. Everyone's on the same stage, largely gets the same amount of time. Um, and so that's why I know that we can always elevate great ideas. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're a great speaker. Sharknado be damned, right? <laughs> Please help me thank Ruth for joining us this evening. listening to this Startup Brian Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding. Keep grinding.